From the Wheeler Centre, you're listening to the Fifth Estate Podcast. For this episode, recorded on Tuesday 24th of May 2016, our host Sally Warhaft is joined by Roger Cohen. He's a columnist with the New York Times. He worked uh, for very many years as a foreign correspondent and was the foreign editor of the New York Times uh, during its Pulitzer Prize winning coverage of the 9-11 aftermath. He's the author of numerous books, uh, but the one that I'll be most referring to this evening is this one, The Girl from Human Street, uh, Ghosts of Memory in a Jewish Family, and it is the story of Roger's family. And uh, it's a book about the past and belonging and identity and place and what it means to be a Jew, and it's an absolutely... uh, Beautiful, beautiful book. Please welcome Roger. I'm, I'm going to start uh, by uh, quoting back a couple of lines of Roger's from a column he wrote just a couple of days ago, uh, which I found uh, hilarious and disturbing. Uh, it's a column called Australia or Anywhere. Uh, and uh, these are just a few of the bits of it that I underlined. I boarded a flight at JFK in New York. I flew for 24 hours to the bottom of the world. I left a country, the United States, in the midst of an election campaign. I arrived in a country, Australia, in the midst of an election campaign. The electoral battle here pits the Conservative Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull from the Liberal Party against Bill Shorten from the left of centre Labor Party. But the candidate people talk about is Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, I had a cappuccino before I left. There was a cute heart shape traced in the foam. Next to the Sydney Opera House, familiar from photographs, I had a cappuccino. There was a cute heart shaped in the foam. I lose myself in the silvery play of moonlight on water. Where on earth am I? (laughs) Well, Roger, you're at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sally, for telling me that. And uh, you you are aware of that. You you know. Well, yeah, it's dawning dawning on me. Yeah, I mean, look, that column. I could actually just talk about that column for an hour because you you I've just selected some lovely lines from it, but you nail. Uh, you nail it in that column. Uh, and I assume you'd only been here for about 24 hours uh, if, when you wrote uh, yeah. it. Um, Actually, I, I was desperate for a column. It was all I could think of yeah. to write. <laughs> <laughs> Asking anyone to write two columns a week is a lot. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, but I guess it's a feeling we all have at some point these days of travelling great distances and having a feeling at least initially of being almost in the same place, the ads are the same, you can get the same things to eat and drink, the shopping malls look the same, the brands are the same, and um, that kind of homogenization that's gone with globalization uh, can be quite disturbing. And, and then you carry your world with you because you've got your handheld device, you've still got your Twitter feed, you've still got your Facebook, and, um, and it can be a tremendous distraction from where you actually are. And I believe very strongly that immersion in place is fundamental to journalism and to good writing. You, you, you can't write about a place unless you're able to put aside distraction and immerse yourself in it. So while technology has made a lot of things a lot easier, especially filing. I mean, I started out filing by telex. I can remember waiting in Beirut in the Commodore Hotel, you know, to feed the telex in. And, uh, but uh, I do worry that uh, we're so distracted these days that we lose that critical ability to realise we're in Melbourne. You write that a journalist's life is agitation. Mm. Um, hopefully, the you know, moving on from the telex machine has has improved that agitation somewhat. But of course, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about an inner agitation. I, I'm wondering I, if you can elaborate on that a little more. Just that idea of a journalist's life being agitation. Well, it's agitation. It's adrenaline. Um, you move from one story 
to the other. If you're not prepared to slow down from time to time, there can be a, an almost um, voyeuristic aspect to it. You plunge deeply into somebody's story. Um, you write it. That person's life remains the same. That person goes on living with the dilemmas and possibly the agony even in war zones. I've worked quite a, worked quite a lot in war zones that you find them, but you move on. Um, and um, it's a restless kind of existence and the adrenaline rises with the column or piece you're about to write and then, and then it subsides. And, but writing a column's a bit like living under a windmill. You, you miss one blade and you look up and the next one's already coming to get you. So it's not, if you're looking for peace, um, I guess it's, I mean, there are great rewards and sometimes you do feel that you make a difference and that is very important. And good journalism is critical to open societies, the, the ability to hold governments accountable, to hold corporations accountable without, I mean, I believe in it. I believe in it still. Um, uh, but it can be a very uh, restless existence and uh, um, I've, I've walked into a lot of uh, hotel rooms at this point, and uh, sometimes uh, the feeling can be a little empty. But then, you know, you immerse yourself in, in the story you want to tell, and um, I do still get a thrill from that. Uh, you, you make the point, too, that uh, in journalism it's taking those small stories and... Uh, elaborating and, and seeing the bigger story behind them, which, I mean, you do that so beautifully in your columns. But for most of your working life, it's been the really big stories that you've covered, uh, the Balkans, all, all sorts of horror that you've seen. Um, did you endeavour to, to take the small in your coverage uh, uh, and your journalism in those places as well, or do you just see something that needs to be reported and you tell the story? Well, there are all kinds of different stories, and as a foreign correspondent, I think good foreign correspondents do all kinds of stories. Clearly, if, let's say, when I was in Sarajevo and... Um, a shell falls on the marketplace and tens of people are killed. That's a big story. You've just got to write it and you've got to write it to deadline. And, uh, and I trained at Reuters news agencies and I've always been very grateful I did because um, it's, it's useless to write well if you can't write to deadline. You've got to be able to get the job done, be a pro, get the file the story and get it to New York or wherever it's, it's going. But I guess personally, um, I've, I've always been most interested uh, when I could in telling stories through people. Um, I've always felt, be it in South America, um, in Argentina, which I covered um, you know, with the desaparecidos, the disappeared, and uh, you know, rooms full of tears, these parents uh, who'd been raised their children, and then the, the child was asked to go down to the police station for 20 minutes to check some detail, and you never see that child again, and there's there's no closure. There's no closure when you can't, when you don't know. And of course, years later, we discovered that those bodies had ended up in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but I've always been most interested in, you know, rather than going to many, many different people, finding one person or one family into whose psyche I could go delve deeply. And I believe that if you're patient enough, if you're prepared to listen through silences, um, wait for that opening in somebody's makeup that allows you, gives you a path in, there's a sudden realization that, oh, here's a story that tells the whole story of Bosnia, or at least a big chunk of what is going on. Uh, that's been the kind of story that's interested me most. I guess like many journalists, I'm kind of a novelist monke, and uh, I should probably have, I mean, I've written, of course, short stories and things, but I... 
I, you know, I do find human dilemmas, human predicaments, uh, the way the gale of history can just blast through somebody's life, not here in Melbourne, I think, but in Europe, in the Middle East, in South America when I was covering it. Um, one minute your life is normal, predictable, with its habits and framework, and the next, the gale of history, the virus of hatred, the virus of extreme nationalism is revived by some ruthless leader, and everything, everything you assumed, your very neighbor, your neighbor who's been your friend, suddenly you're a Serb and she's a Croat, or you're a Bosnian Muslim and he's a Macedonian, and things that you'd never even thought about become the fuses for unthinkable violence. And it's worrying, you know, what we see around the world these days, I think. Uh, there really is a wave of nationalist um, thought and of bigotry. Um, it's arisen, I think, for all sorts of reasons, but we see it um, in the US election campaign, we see it in Austria, we see it in Britain. Um, and I arrived here to an outburst that I found extraordinary from the immigration minister. So We'll, we'll uh, get to that. You know. <laughs> I was going to surprise you with his words, Roger, but I found you'd already written a column about it. <laughs> uh, the story, of course, that you have delved into most deeply and had the most patience uh, is your own, your family's story in this book. And... Uh, Tell us first why this story was so deeply important to you. And in doing it, you tell the story of your family and in so doing, centuries of movement, of, uh, well, of all sorts of issues tied up in the 20th century. Mm. Well, we talked about agitation, Sally, and uh, I guess just at a certain point um, it occurred to me that the most dangerous state for me was not being in Sarajevo or being in Beirut or being uh, in Gaza or wherever. The most dangerous state for me uh, was, was stillness. And the most uh, dangerous way to direct my gaze was not outward at all these stories I'd been writing about, but inward into my own story because I came to the realization that Perhaps I'd been drawn to people who'd, whose lives had been upended, who'd gone through repetitive displacement, who'd lost uh, a lot of things on their journey because they weren't as different as I might have supposed um, from me and from my family. Um, I'd been raised in Britain in privileged circumstances, largely in Britain, I, first two years of my life in South Africa. My parents were South African immigrants to Britain, uh, and their forebears came from Lithuania, Lithuanian Jews who went to South Africa. About 80 to 90% of South African Jews are of Lithuanian descent. But I was raised in a, in a privileged manner, and my family's overriding aim was assimilation. And the Jewish past was forgotten. The, the word immigrant was never used. Uh, Lithuania was a word I never really heard. And um, it occurred to me that I needed to uh, try to discover um, where I came from um, and what my family story was. Because, you know, in the United States, and I'm now an American citizen, we and perhaps in Australia too, uh, we think of immigration as new hope, the American dream, the Australian dream, coming here penniless, making your life. And there is that. And um, this business of reinvention is an extraordinary thing. Uh, we reinvent our lives in new places. But it goes, the black star as opposed, the black sun as opposed to that bright star is, is lost. It's leaving something behind. It's reinventing yourself, which is a painful process. And it was a process that overwhelmed my mother. And she is the girl from Human Street. She was born on Human Street in a little mining town in South Africa called Krugersdorp. 
And so I wanted to tell a double story of a Jewish odyssey of the 20th century and late 19th century, but also of my mother's breakdown within that. It's a, a, a profound you know, mental illness battle that she endures for, is it two decades uh, after the birth of your sister? Yeah. Um, and the links that you draw for, for her uh, moving from South Africa to England and the, the difference in that experience for her compared to your father who adapted uh, and, and, and got on with his life um, is, a, is a really remarkable story. And a, um, I, I imagine for you too a, a quite, a, quite a, a frightening one, the realisation of how important her mental state was um, in your memory as a boy growing up and how much, and in fact a more widespread illness in, your, in both sides of your family um, and that fear of stillness that you have mm. uh, is not... Um, uh, not unrelated. Not unrelated, <laughs> no. Uh, there's a lot of love in this no. story too and yeah. I, w I was so drawn to... Uh, Polly and Morris, mm -hmm. um, who are your uh, maternal grandparents. Paternal. Paternal. Yeah. Um, who married in Johannesburg, mm. but they they grew up in uh, in towns in Lithuania, 20 miles apart. Right. And uh, spoke in Yiddish. Uh, there, there's a lot of love in the book, but that to me was the the loveliest. Mm. The, the, the story of South Africa, to me, uh, overwhelms a great part of this book. Mm. Um, I'd like you to talk about how now, um, as you've written this story, you reflect back. You were a very young boy. You were 18 months old, I think, when you left South Africa. Uh, but how apartheid, how um, being from a Jewish family in mm. South Africa has impacted on you? Mm. Well, South Africa is a very big part, Sally, of my childhood memories. I, I did leave, as you said, as an infant and was raised uh, in Britain from the age of two. Um, but to me, South Africa is sunlight. Uh, as opposed to the dirty bathwater skies of Britain. And, um, and it's also the place where my mother was happy. And I think that's very important. When I think of my mother in South Africa, of June in South Africa, I see her laughing on a beach with her sunglasses and her floppy hat or biting into one of those wonderful um, firm yellow peaches of Cape Town that you don't really find anywhere else in the world. And because her mental illness was so um, painful, became so painful in Britain, I mean, she disappeared when I was two into psychiatric institutions for a couple of years. Um, of course, um, that impacted me very profoundly. I wasn't at an age where I could verbalize it, but obviously I felt it deep in my psyche. And part of the book was trying to discover what had happened to her, because that was then never spoken about in my family until in the last 25 years of her life, she became manic depressive, bipolar. Um, so South Africa was a place that was outside that. Um, and I remember it very, very vividly. Um, and I remember, in answer to your question, absorbing apartheid by a kind of osmosis, um, what racism was. It was, I could feel it. You know, I would see the blacks bathing in the filthy harbor at Cork Bay. I mean, now it's a chic, clean little harbor, but it wasn't then. And then I would go to Musenberg Beach and see these miles and miles of white sand with white sitting on it. And even in a six-year-old, seven-year-old's mind, there was something very discordant about There's something going on here. Or I would wander by mistake into the wrong uh, 
compartment on a train or um, when I was a bit older. And um, so it was there. And every year, you know, my family would say to me, oh, darling, enjoy the swimming pools in Houghton. My parents' family were in this very, don't know what the equivalent in Melbourne would be, but very nice, mainly Jewish suburb called Houghton. And they would say, enjoy the swimming pools. Next year, they'll be red with blood. And this phrase stuck in my mind, they would be red with blood. Why? Because the blacks at the horizon in those dusty, fetid, ghastly townships where they were confined by this cruel and unjust and racist system would rise up and dislodge the four million whites uh, perched on the high reef and elsewhere. The richest seam of gold in the world, as you know, was discovered in Johannesburg in the 1880s. And uh, the whites would be driven out uh, by the 30-plus million blacks. And of course, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Why? Because of leadership, that forgotten word, leadership. Um, and that's a lesson I've always taken with me around the world, um, in Israel, Palestine, or elsewhere. You know, nothing is impossible if you have leadership. But that requires putting the wounds, putting the wounds of the past behind you and placing a greater value on the potential of the future. And it's much easier to wallow in victimhood than it is to imagine a better future, which requires moving out of victimhood into agency. South Africa was a good place to be Jewish in the 20th century. And in fact, you, you write it, uh, looked after its Jews, letting them live through the 20th century was in itself a considerable gift. Uh, but, uh, and I'll quote a, a friend of the family uh, that, you, that you write about who, who let slip the sentiment, thank God for the blacks. If not for them, it would be us. And that, you know, the, the Jews of South Africa on the whole kept their heads down. Um, and your maternal grandmother uh, would vote for the Progressive Party and then pray the National Party maintained in power. Um, and there's a very, there's a lot going on in, in that uh, uh, little, little passage there of, yeah. what it, of, of memory um, and, and oppression and, but also that there are three ways to, to deal with oppression, that, that you can uh, be a, a resistor, you can, uh, you can be indifferent, uh, you can be a victim. Yeah, uh, yeah you can go along, uh, you know, sit on the fence and somebody gets killed behind it. So what is the predominant feeling these days, do you think, in... in uh, we don't have apartheid anymore, but we have, well, let's go back to immigration mm. and fear of others. Mm. Uh, tell me, tell me uh, what you would see as it being like to be a Muslim uh, in a city like Melbourne mm. uh, or, in fact, in any other part of the world right now. Mm. Well, just uh, briefly on apartheid before I, I get to that, I think... You know, it was interesting. It was, I mean, here was a system, apartheid, that was doing to the blacks. Um, it wasn't a process of annihilation, but uh, for any Jew arriving in South Africa from Europe, let's say from Budapest, a system that allocated or placed certain benches off limits or certain places off limits or certain sidewalks uh, off limits, which gathered certain communities in certain places because they weren't allowed to go other places, that could not fail to be uh, a very, very powerful echo of what the Jews had lived in Europe um, in the build-up uh, to um, the Holocaust. And that was unmistakable. So I think for any Jew, always, especially having been strangers in strange lands for so long, and having learned at the very core of our ethics, you know, that which is hateful to yourself, do not do to your fellow man, 
Um, this question of the outsider, this question of how we deal with the other, um, and we're admonished really to, and we've been in that situation. We've uh, look at what happened to the Jews in the 1930s when they tried to get into uh, countries across the world. Sorry, doors closed here. So these echoes uh, were always there, and individual Jews in South Africa, I mean, Mandela's lawyers were all Jews, pretty much, and um, the Jewish community proportionately did more than other whites in South Africa to oppose apartheid, but the official uh, Jewish organizations in, in South Africa went along. They said in repeated statements that it was a matter of individual conscience and they were not a political organization. They were not going to raise their voice. Some Jewish families, to get back to the categories you mentioned, they actively supported apartheid. Um, the Kroc family made a fortune from skin whitening products uh, because the more you could whiten yourself um, in the South African system, um, the better you did, or the better you might be able to do. So, you know, that's, that's sort of the back, that's where I come from. Um, that's why I have such, I think, I have very strong and passionate feelings about refugee issues and about bigotry and, and about hatred toward others. Um, uh, it's something very deep uh, inside me. And let's face it, ethnocentrism is a pretty fundamental human instinct. It's just there. Uh, it's there. And if you, it's not that difficult to light the switch, you know, to, 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 to light the flame. And it can be very, very ugly um, when people face any kind of hardship or feel any kind of threat. Um, the easiest thing is to find a scapegoat, uh, to band together, to let rip your ethnocentricity. And um, after, you know, since 9-11, since look, there is a threat to the West. Uh, we have not gotten a handle on this metastasizing uh, jihadist ideology, now most virulently concentrated uh, in ISIS. Um, but to say, as Mr. DT, I'm not going to pronounce his name, uh, has said, you know, to, to, to take from that the fact that the 1.6 billion Muslims of the world are all suspect is not, is not uh, the direction uh, in which to go. No. I mean, we have to uh, confront this ideology, try to defeat it. We haven't succeeded up to now. And in that battle, um, the most important people are going to be Muslims. I mean, we can't tell. We can try. I don't think we're going to succeed. But when a Muslim like the newly elected mayor of London speaks out and says, this is not what our faith is. This is not who we are. Uh, we believe in the freedoms uh, and responsibilities afforded by the liberal democracies in which we live. That is by far the most uh, powerful and eloquent, I think, uh, kind of voice ag um, against um, jihadi extremism. And so when, okay, I'll say it, when Trump says something like that, it's actually um, makes matters far worse. And, you know, here it's just very puzzling to see, to hear, you know, look, you don't become a refugee because you have a choice. You become a refugee because you have no choice. You don't put your five-year-old or three-year-old child in a rubber dinghy on the high seas because you have a choice. You put a three-year-old child in a rubber dinghy on the high seas because you have no choice, because you've lived through three, five, however many years of war in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq, in these places where these refugees are coming from to Europe and also via Indonesia and other places. And why are they trying to get to Australia? Because they've heard about freedom in Australia. They've heard about opportunity in Australia. And you can't simply uh, dismiss these people as illiterate and enumerate and say, in effect, that their lives 
can be sacrificed because they're dying, not in huge numbers, but every now and again one of them dies. That they can die because if they die, that's a good deterrent and we won't have boats arriving on our shore. For a nation like Australia, that, in my view, is unacceptable and untenable. Tell us why you think it's happening here. And is there a relationship to DT? <laughs> uh, well, thank you for adopting that <laughs> oh, principle. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Look, Sally, mm. Sally I've, I've never been to Australia before. Please come I've back been, again, right? Yeah, where... <laughs> I've been here for less than a week. I'm really not in a position. We talked about the psyche. I, you know, I do believe that... Nations like people, you know, it's interesting to think of them in terms of their, their psyche. On the face of it, it's puzzling. Um, it's a vast country. It's a relatively empty country. I mean, I flew, I flew from Sydney to Melbourne today, and it was clear a lot of the way, and I gazed down, and, you know, I've been told that it's empty because it's all desert. Well, I mean, I saw lots of trees on the way down and lots of water, and compared to Europe uh, or the United States, um, it was empty. That is uh, the most populated part of Australia. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, so here's a vast, relatively empty country made up largely of immigrants uh, reacting in a rather violent, rather cruel, and seemingly rather irrational way uh, to... I mean, I um, got to know a little bit an attorney named Stephen Glass in, uh, in uh, Sydney, and he, he remarked that the number of people who've actually reached Australia in this way by, by boat numbers in, in the tens of thousands since 1788. 80,000 was the figure I think he used. Uh, so it seems like an irrational um, reaction, but there's clearly a feeling even here uh, that this kind of um, ethnocentric uh, um, message, um, this message, this harsh, angry message, um, plays well with enough Australians to be a politically viable ploy. I'm not saying it's simple. I mean, clearly, if you have boats, caps, look at the Mediterranean. Um, but. I think quite clearly these people should be brought to Australia. We're talking about, what, 15, less than 1,500 people treated with humanity, and their claim, many of them, most of them, have had their refugee status confirmed. Uh, so it is, it is a, a puzzle to me, but there is anxiety in the world. Uh, people are anxious about their economic situation. Um, they feel that globalization subjects them to forces they cannot control. Uh, they see the rich getting very rich and they may be struggling a bit. And, you know, this country went through the financial crisis of 2008 very smoothly, sailing on uh, unending Chinese demand for raw materials, which Australia has in abundance, and that's kind of tailed off. And, uh, and so I guess in Australia too, there, there must be... I mean, the Prime Minister is saying there's never been a better time to be an, or more exciting time to be an Australian. So on the face of it, if it's that exciting, it shouldn't be shot through with the kind of fear that produces the kind of statements from his immigration minister, which then caused the Prime Minister to call Dutton outstanding. Well, I, I didn't get that. Again, I don't know anything. I've just arrived here. Mm. <laughs> Well, it's, it is of interest to... I mean, you clearly do. And, uh, and, but you're, it, it's, it's, it's interesting always to hear from a, a, an outsider, from a visitor, uh, but with ethnographic eyes, uh, what, what you make of a new place that is also on the surface very similar. Uh, right. Is that play that you're talking about of, of what you think is going on with our government and politics here, and I, I think it's a very accurate uh, reading. Uh, is, it, is it similar to what's going on in America, or is, is it different there? Well, I think it is different. I think what's going on in America is um, more 
uh, virulent maybe. Uh, there's a real disgust in the United States that both Donald Trump and I think Bernie Sanders in different ways are, are playing off which with the political system, with a feeling that it's dysfunctional, it's totally polarized, it's been bought, uh, big money is, is corrupting the political process. Um, and uh, the feeling I described of, of one's life being out of control, of stagnant um, income for a very wide, or falling for a very wide swathe of the American population, um, that has plus two lost wars or unwon wars, at least in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, that have cost trillions of feeling that American power, and it's not, still the greatest power in the world by some distance, but a feeling that the tectonic plates of global power are shifting, and those are always the most dangerous moments, of course, Sally, in global history, and, and it is going on right now. And I think Americans are in some way aware of that after all. Uh, there's been a tremendous commitment of blood and treasure to uh, two faraway places, and the results seem pretty paltry. Certainly there are no victory parades on Broadway. And uh, all that combined with, I think, the, the cultural changes in America on the two coasts that have left flyover country, as it's sometimes called, behind, or at least in a very different place. I mean, I'm referring to same-sex marriage, to the abortion issue, to now uh, transgender issues. I mean, America is involved in a big discussion about toilets. Um, so uh, who, who should have access to which toilet? So that shows you kind of where we've gotten to. Uh, I'm sure it is an important discussion, but sometimes it feels... Um, that a little uh, exaggerated. In any event, there's a part of the country that culturally is at a different place from where the coasts are. And so there's this simmering anger, and along comes uh, an orange-haired TV huckster uh, who... It's not what Trump says that worries me, because he says everything and the opposite of everything. And he's a man who really doesn't have any principles. He's not a man of the right or a man of the left. He's a man of wherever he can promote Trumpism. And uh, so what he says is kind of irrelevant or secondary to me. And uh, I assume if elected, he would have to or try to surround himself with some uh, sensible people, I hope, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really, don't want to go to that scenario yet. Um, but uh, it's who he is. It's who he is. Um, he's an egomaniac. He's a bully. Uh, his relationship to truth-telling is extremely tenuous or perhaps non-existent. Um, and you combine that with a man who gets very irritable when somebody says his finger is a little too short, and those very fingers will be on the nuclear button, and there's a great deal of power in the White House, a great deal of power. That seems to me to be a pretty combustible combination of elements, and that's what worries me. I mean, I mean, I'm sure Australians don't worry, Well, right? we laugh and giggle, but I wasn't laughing. I mean, he'll visit here at the very least if he's president. I, uh, I mean, it's just it's uh, yeah. an unimaginable yeah. uh, scene, really. You so, know, he was, uh, he was laughed off uh, repeatedly. I wrote a column in, I think it was October, uh, called Weimar America. And uh, I said in that column, you have to take this guy very seriously, because there, was, there is a kind of perfect storm that I tried to outline in what I just said. I'm going to move on from that, <laughs> uh, although uh, it probably won't get any less bleak. Uh, I mean, it, there, there's, a, there's a thrust in your writings and in, in, and in, in hearing you speak as well of uh, a, a perhaps not despondency, but a, a, not a lot of hope in the liberal democratic uh, moment or that it was a very temporary moment mm. and that a sense of 
unravelling or moving on to the next thing that won't be mm. as big a possibility mm. of goodness. Mm. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's very perceptive, Sally. I, I think a moment of optimism has certainly passed and I, I think it's lasted maybe two decades, maybe maybe a quarter century, no, I think more like two decades, after the end of, of the Cold War. And there, most famously, you know, the phrase, the end of history had been reached, liberal democracies had triumphed, free markets, the rule of law. Humanity had kind of come to its senses and realized that totalitarian hells, like the Soviet Imperium, in which human liberty is quashed and you can disappear into some room at any time of night or day and not be seen again and uh, um, the individual is not valued um, and individual aspirations are not valued. Um, humanity didn't want to live like that anymore. Um, well, I think that optimism has evaporated. We've seen the authoritarian systems of Putin's Russia and of Xi's China um, making a claim to be viable, more effective uh, alternative models. Um, those optimistic ideas like R2P, the responsibility to protect, endlessly debated at the United Nations, that the world would say no if something like Syria arises or Gaddafi's Libya, if the world perceives that human rights um, are being trampled in massive bloodshed in countries, that national borders would be overridden and the world would intervene to do good. Well, that seems an almost risible concept already. And a, a lot of energy was expended on it not so long ago. Now, interventions are coming from Putin's Russia. And they're not in the name of human rights. They're in the name of realpolitik. They're in the name of expanding um, national power and influence, in the name of defending bloody autocrats like Bashar al-Assad. So I think it's very hard to argue that, or to escape the sense that that optimism that I described um, has, has evaporated and that the world is rather dangerous right now um, you know, what if Putin goes into Estonia, um, you know, where there's a Russian minority and it's a NATO member? Well, I damn well hope NATO would do what it says it would do under its treaties, which is defend Estonia under Article 5. If it doesn't, then all bets are off. And I certainly hope President Putin um, does not do that. I would just balance that sense I've described with a feeling that all that all geostrategic, global politics and economics um, just misses a very essential element of the way the world works today. There are other networks uh, that are very powerful. Um, the networks that work through social media, the networks that uh, corporations use, uh, the networks that NGOs use. Uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of exciting things going on. Um, uh, and one shouldn't discount that, that energy and that the potential of those networks to deliver um, good outcomes, be they on climate or uh, on issues of, of just human safety uh, and survival. So it's not like I'm... And as I said, you know, I come from the experience of Mandela in South Africa or, or even the work I've, you know, I was Berlin correspondent in the New York Times for a while and I would drive into Poland sometimes just 60 miles away and I didn't know where the border was and I would drive and suddenly I'd hear Polish being spoken and I had to pinch myself, you know, this was in the late uh, 1990s and, you know, just 60 years earlier, not a few hundred thousand, not a million, but tens of millions of people had been killed on that very soil, that I, on that very territory that um, uh, I was driving across. So 
you know, these are the kinds of experiences that have meant that, you know, I can never be an out-and-out pessimist. I'm going to uh, read you a quote. I don't want to spoil that happy note, but... Um, <laughs> Already, Sally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we haven't got a lot more time left, so we better talk about Israel. Uh, it is an illusion to think a peaceful, binational and secular state could ever happen. The one-state idea is a pipe dream. The fault lines are too deep. Two states are needed. The compromises required will be painful for both sides and the alternative is conflict without end. In Israel, and the, obviously so many of the, the, the problems and challenges in that part of the world are very particular and its relationship with the rest of the world is very particular as well. But how much also of what's going on there is part of what you've been describing about, about the, the tone of the world right now? Well, it's a very uh, bleak moment in, in Israel-Palestine and, and, and obvi I mean, Syria is the big blot on... I'm an admirer of President Obama, but Syria is a, is a, is a big blot on his presidency. Uh, you know, uh, upward of a quarter of a million dead now and millions displaced and a conflict that was dismissed by the administration for a long time as bad but parochial. Well, no, uh, millions of refugees pouring into Europe, uh, America's allies struggling to... Uh, deal with that refugee flow, and it's a disaster. And in Israel-Palestine, a big effort that was made uh, by the administration, 25-plus visits by Secretary of State Kerry, and it all came to nothing. In fact, it came to the third Gaza war in six years. And I was in Gaza maybe 18 months ago, and, you know, you speak to kids who are nine years old. They've seen three wars. They don't need any instruction in what in how to think about Israel, and they've absorbed it, and they've absorbed it for the rest of their lives, and their homes are rubble. And um, it's a very, very, um, to state the obvious, intractable conflict. There's very bad leadership, not only on the Israeli side, in my view, but also on the Palestinian side. And um, you know, it comes back to what I, I was talking about and what I tried to get at in, in, that, in that brief passage. Look, Palestinians and Israelis are never going to agree on what happened in 1948. It will always be the Nakba, or catastrophe, for the Palestinians. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians driven out of their homes after the Arabs, it has to be said, went to war against what the United Nations had resolved, two states for two peoples in the Holy Land. Uh, and for Israel, it will always be the day of independence. So you can't have one country celebrating or marking its Nakba and its Day of Independence on the same day. It doesn't work. And anyway, if you look around at Syria, Iraq, even Turkey these days, uh, the example of multi-ethnic or multi-religious countries in that area is pretty dismal right now. So the only way forward, in my view, and the only way to end the violence, because the status quo is violent, it's violent now. Uh, you're seeing stabbings, you're seeing killings. Um, status quo suggests static. Maybe that suggests also tranquil if you don't keep your mind alert. But it's not. It's, it's violent. And the compromises are very, very, very painful for both sides. The Palestinians have to give up on the right of return. Um, the right of return is not a right. It's a claim. And uh, in effect, um, and uh, it won't, you know, Palestinians will not go back to Haifa. They will not go back to Tel Aviv. They will go back to a newly created state of Palestine if that happens. And that's a very, very tough thing. There can be compensation. There should be compensation. There should be discussions. But that's the big sacrifice the Palestinians would have to make. And Israel has to get, has to give up, has to stop the settlement growth, finally, it'll be 50 years next year, the occupation. It's corrosive. It's corrupting. It's undermining the democratic 
Jewish and democratic state of Israel, a state of laws. You have a state of laws to the west of the Green Line. You have a, a lawless area um, to the east of it. And Israel will have to, uh, there can be negotiation, and some of the big settlement blocks will no would no doubt remain within Israel under any negotiated settlement. But tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, of Israelis will have to move out of the West Bank. So that's another back into Israel proper, into Israel. So that, those are two, and you haven't even dealt with Jerusalem at that point. And Jerusalem would have, there would have to be some part of Jerusalem that the Palestinians could call their capital. These are not small things, but again, uh, you don't live off narrative. You don't put food on the table through narrative. Um, you do it through leadership, through saying, yes, these are agonizing, agonizing compromises, but they are the only compromises on which peace and a decent future for Jewish, Israeli, and Palestinian children can be built. You just can only imagine if he'd lived a conversation between Rabin and Obama that was off the record. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the assassination of Rabin is, was one of the most effective assassinations in history. Um, Rabin hated Arafat. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie The Gatekeepers. I mean, there you see uh, five or six men, they are all men, who've dedicated their lives to Israel's security. And like Rabin, they come to the agonizing conclusion, this is untenable. We cannot do it forever. We cannot police the lives of millions of Palestinians. We just can't do it. So Rabin extends his hand to a man he hated, Arafat. And he was, of course, gunned down by, not by a Palestinian, by a messianic, a Jewish fanatic. And messianic Zionism is the great scourge of Israel today. This notion that all the land is ours between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Why is it ours? Because it is. Because it is. It just is. It was deeded to us in the scriptures. It is. And you can't run the world. You certainly can't run the Holy Land on that basis. There just happen to be um, thousands of years of history and millions of other people that come between you and that vision. And um, vision suggests something positive. It's not positive. It's, it's an idea that leads to violence, bloodshed, conflict, and extremism. And at the other end, too, an impenetrable American political... Trope, isn't it? It's like this this it's immovable idea that, that an American president can't have anything but the one line. Is there any uh, more optimism on that front? Uh, of course, if we leave our bestie DT out of this conversation, perhaps. But, I mean, is there any uh, hope that, that there could ever be even the slightest bit of fluidity? In, in that. Yeah. Um, well, I think President Obama did try, try briefly. Uh, he made the speech in Cairo. He called for an end to the settlement expansion. Uh, then he retreated from it. Uh, he tried to say something about the green line being the line more or less at which there would have to be territorial compromise, and then he never said it again. Uh, there are tremendous uh, political pressures um, on the president, uh, from the Congress, from APAC uh, and others to uh, adhere to a line of simply supporting Israel uh, uncritically. I think there are a few little cracks or fissures in that uh, approach. There's been the emergence of J Street, a uh, very rapid emergence. It's not nearly on the scale of APAC, but nevertheless it's created a space in which American Jews can say, we support Israel, we're Zionists, but we don't support Israel uncritically. Uh, we're against settlement expansion, we're against the settlements, 
and we believe that this right-wing government of Prime Minister Netanyahu is making many mistakes, and we find the way that President Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu tried to intervene on behalf of Mitt Romney in the last election, go round the president to the Congress, portray Barack Obama as no friend of Israel. No friend of Israel he provided 20 plus billion dollars in military aid uh, since 2008, more than one billion uh, in financial assistance for the Iron Dome defense system, blocked I don't know how many resolutions uh, critical of Israel in the United Nations. Um, President Obama has been a friend of Israel. So there is anger and irritation uh, in certain swathes of the Jewish community uh, in Israel, uh, Jewish community in America toward uh, Netanyahu. And you find younger Jews in America feeling increasingly alienated. At the time of the last Gaza war, uh, in um, opinion polls, um, Americans in the you know, 19 to 28 age group um, found what Israel was doing to be disproportionate, were very critical. So, but there won't be any quick fix on that front. You're right, Sally. There just, there just is a very strong identification of the US, and not just of American Jews, with Israel's small, you know, that old image of the small, plucky, democratic, free and democratic country. Um, it is a small country, but it is an also today an extremely powerful country, strong country. Mm -hmm. uh, we have time for just a couple of uh, brief questions. If uh, and I'll should put some microphone in your hand. Start talking. Yep. Hey, uh, you are obviously prolific with the two columns a week and your books. Can you? Describe just really how you go about this, how to accomplish that sort of output. It's agony. <laughs> More specifically. <laughs> the worst question one's ever asked when writing a book is, how's the book going? Um, never ask an author that. Writing a book is, is, is very tough, and it's a long... I always think of it as this long journey uh, in the dark, and then you... And then you reach a ridge at some point, usually after painful years of struggle, and you kind of see a way home. And that is a great moment. And of course, finishing a book is a great moment. Um, I can tell you this, sir. When, as a columnist, in desperation, uh, you contemplate an empty space on a prominent page of the New York Times the next mm. day, uh, where your column was supposed to be. Uh, it is a tremendous spur <laughs> to have a goddamn idea, <laughs> no matter virtually what idea sometimes. Twice uh, a week is... Uh, and I think, you know, to expect anybody to have even a semi-original idea twice a week is a <laughs> lot to ask of anybody. Of course, on one level, and I'm not complaining, it's an amazing job, and you have this bully pulpit, you can go on about something you believe in. Maybe I'll go on about the Australian refugee issue for a while now, or the Iranian could, nuclear could deal, which I mm. believed was important. So there's a hu it's hugely privileged, but um, it, a column does require an idea most of the time, and it's a very tight form. It's 800 words. Uh, it, pr it, it needs pithiness, succinctness, an idea, maybe an idea and a half, a kind of twist, two-thirds of the way down. And, of course, two times 800 words a week can seem like very little, maybe. Um, but uh, it's in, on one's mind, let's put it that way, you know, nearly, nearly all the time. And as Oscar Wilde observed, uh, having written a long letter to his love, uh, he apologized for writing such a long letter because he didn't have time to write a short one. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Next. Sally, I wonder through you <clears throat> if I could ask Roger, having heard him twice in Sydney in the Writers' Festival last week, if he could... You're definitely overdosing, I'm sorry. <laughs> with, with great pleasure. Um, to get an understanding of where Roger comes from, 
There is an amazing and extraordinary letter that Roger received from his father, who's still living at the age of 95, after his mother died, given the history of mental illness. That letter, if I could ask Roger to read from the book, please. Uh, that's Ralph, isn't it? My eyes. Yeah. Look, we're not going to have time for that. We, we don't... We, we're running over time already. It is in the book. Um, but what I would like to do is encourage everyone to buy the book. The Avenue Bookstore are here tonight and uh, get a copy and uh, rather than us rushing through it uh, right now, but it is absolutely uh, a beautiful uh, extract from from that letter. Yeah, Maybe you, you can... I mean, it is quite a short letter, it, but I mean, it, as... Okay, I can't have both Ralph Renard <laughs> and you. Do you know where it is? I don't, actually, I, I mean, I... Uh, See, now we need the glasses. <laughs> it's 20 past. <laughs> okay, well, as you wish. Sally. No, 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 yeah, I want yeah, it now. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, you must. Uh, oh, gosh. It's actually, I, I wouldn't, it's a tough letter always. From, when I have read it, I always struggle with it because it affects me very deeply. So, gosh, I see. Um, yeah, so this was a letter. I mean, my mother died of cancer in 1999. Cancer to her, compared to mental illness, was always a derisory thing. It was a way out. Uh, cancer to her was nothing compared to the ravages of mental illness that she'd suffered. And about two weeks after she died, my father wrote this letter to me. And, uh, and, and of course, you can imagine the strains on a marriage that that uh, mental illness produces. And uh, he was married to her for 49 years. Um, and he wrote, now that mum's life is spent, we are each of us left with the pain and turmoil of personal accounting. I agree with you that this should be a time of gentleness. For mum, there was always a need for tenderness and gentle compassion. And all of us are left with stark memories of our failure to satisfy this innocent, almost childlike requirement of her psyche. Your expanding memories of mom have become infinitely precious and important. I share with you the vision of a light which is the obverse of her tormenting darkness and which in some miraculous way has become completely dominant since her death. I hope and pray that this vision of her will be an enduring source of strength and inspiration to you in all the years ahead, ever cherished and unsullied. For myself, I did have a fleeting dream of a few tranquil years carrying me into the sunset. I still hope for that in a mental and bodily sense. But I know that my spirit will not soon be released from those cruel demons that tore so relentlessly at the entwining fabric of love between mum and me. I did strive within the feeble limits of my human fallibility to preserve and cherish and sustain her. But alas, for mama, ultimately, death was the only angel that could shield her from despair. My beloved boy, the matchless eloquence of your writing speaks vividly of how painfully you had to probe and what anguish heaped with torment you've suffered. I hope with all my heart that before too long the turbulence of your spirit will subside and you will reach to tranquility in your inner self. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Mm. My, my dad uh, is a doctor, was a physician, but as you can see, he did know how to write or does know how to write. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, one more really quick. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you okay. for that, by the way, Sally. Oh, it was yeah. my pleasure, Roger. I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to take one more now because I can't end it on that note or I'll be, mm. I won't recover. I'm sorry mm. to take you back to the real politic, if you like. Um, you've talked about the DTs and you've mentioned the BS, but uh, what about <laughs> the other candidate, Hillary? You haven't mentioned her. What sort of president do you think she could be? Why do you think people dislike her so much? Why isn't she just a shoo-in? Yeah, she's not a shoo-in. Um, she's a favourite. Um, but the Sanders campaign has showed that Hillary remains a problematic candidate. Of course, she was overwhelming favourite in 2008 to get the nomination, and she didn't get it. A man named Barack Obama came along. This time, she's been given a hard time by a 
74-year-old Jewish socialist from Brooklyn. And, um, you know, you wouldn't immediately think that a man with that uh, background would have the appeal he's had uh, across the United States. Um, and I think there are two issues um, with Hillary. One is what I would call the used goods issue, the feeling that the Clintons have been around for a very long time. It's a new century. Are we really going back uh, to the Clintons? Um, and the second is the trust issue. Um, the Clinton Global Initiative, where money goes exactly, a feeling that the Clintons always walk this fine line. Um, and, um, and then I think just something intangible. There isn't a clear message. You know, what exactly is, is the Hillary message? Um, and uh, I think people in her own campaign uh, had some trouble answering that. And, uh, you know, as DT has shown up to now, he's pretty good at coming up with these epithets. Um, low energy Bush, just finished Bush. Um, little Marco, Marco Rubio, just about did with him. Lying Ted for Ted Cruz. And now it's crooked Hillary. And I just fear uh, he's adept, uh, DT, at these uh, this kind of manipulation. What kind of president would she be? Um, I think she would be different from Barack Obama. You never know, of course. I think she could be different from Obama in this respect. I think she has a greater belief in the use of American power. Um, she believes, despite the shifts in the world that I've tried to outline, that American power... We've seen the devastating costs of action, of, particularly of American military action, uh, most particularly in Iraq. We've now seen the devastating cost of American inaction uh, in Syria. It is not an answer simply to be inactive. It is not an answer to set a red line and then not uphold it, walk away from it at the last minute. What does that say? about America's word? What does that say about Article 5 of the NATO treaties? What does that say about America's commitment to its allies if a red line is not a red line? So we've seen that inaction and action can both have a cost. And I think that Hillary Clinton, by instinct, uh, leans a little more uh, in the action uh, direction where uh, big crises uh, emerge. So. I think I'll leave it at that. I think that would be one way in which her presidency, uh, at least in the area I'm most concerned with, foreign policy, um, might be distinct from the Obama presidency. And there ends our conversation between Roger Cohen and Sally Warhaft, recorded live at the Wheeler Centre. Next fortnight, Sally will be joined by Marcia Langton and Megan Davis to discuss constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. What form should it take and how will it affect Australian society? That's real recognition coming up next on The Fifth Estate. In the meantime, find your fix of books, writing and ideas at wheelercentre.com and thank you for your company. Thank you.